Hey, new friends. Hey, old friends. Welcome to La Vital Core Salon. This is Kara, and I'm here today with Whitney Beatty, who I'll tell you about in a moment. And I'm also here to offer some comfort through our conversation. I'm always hoping you can take nuggets away from these conversations that you can apply in your own life. That's why I'm always seeking to introduce you to really cool women who are out there making an impact in their particular spaces and industries and how they're doing it without letting bullshit or burnout stop them. Let me tell you a little bit about Whitney Beatty. Inspired by a lack of stylish and safe cannabis storage systems and a total disdain for storing plant medicine in a shoebox, Apothecary Brands CEO Whitney Beatty is a successful entertainment industry executive turned cannabis storage designer that's spearheading her quickly growing startup. Not only is she producing a product, which we'll talk about during the show, her brand is seeking to redefine the image of cannabis users and take it out of the basement stoner sort of vibe and lift it up and introduce us to the discriminating users who are finding pleasure and comfort in their stash. What she's doing seems to be working because she's been winning multiple awards in pitch and startup spaces. Now, some of you may have heard the word cannabis in that intro and been feeling a little weird feels about it. If that is you, I want to challenge you to check your preconceptions and misconceptions about this cannabis industry and meet Whitney and hear her story. Because it's a hell of a story, and Whitney is one funny guest. I found myself laughing sort of appropriately and inappropriately when she was describing having her first panic attack, which I'm sure those of you listening who have had one will totally be able to relate. Anyways, I could keep talking about this guest and this show and all of the things. Without any further ado, voila, meet Whitney. Hey, Whitney, welcome to La Vital Core Salon. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I have one million questions for you today. Based on your experience, based on the transitions you've made in your career, based on everything you're doing now, and based on this wild cannabis industry that I feel like I just got a taste of what is going on having gone to South by Southwest. It's wild. It is wild. It's crazy. And it's been the adventure of a lifetime. I'm excited to talk about it with you. Well, these days, you're the CEO and founder of Apothecary Brands, Inc., where you're designing and selling luxury urban tobacco organizational systems, accoutrement, and accessories for, I love this, the discriminating connoisseur. Absolutely. (laughs) But before we talk cannabis, I want to hop back in time, if you will. When did you first get the itch to work in Hollywood? And how did you work your way up to being a senior vice president of development at Warner Brothers? Oh, we're going way back in time. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting question. So my background, um, I'm originally from, born in Detroit, Michigan, and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I always wanted to be an actor from the time I was little. I watched The Cosby Show, and I thought that I could do Rudy's Huxtable's job better than Rudy. Um, My mother always tells me stories about how she found me at six years old um, calling agents in the 
phone book um, because she told me in order to be an actor, you needed an agent. So I, you know, started calling agents. And she was like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was like in Detroit calling agents, trying to find someone to represent me. And my mom's like, you're nuts. But apparently I'm going to have to help you with this. And so I started doing theater and I did theater, you know, through elementary school, middle school, high school. I ended up getting a full ride scholarship for theater to Michigan State University. And I, you know, thought that I was going to perform. And what ended up happening, which I think is probably indicative of my whole life now that I think about it, is that uh, a couple things. I realized that the school was doing a lot of shows that didn't include people of color. You know, they're doing a family show. The whole the whole family is a white family. And the only roles that I was up for was being a maid or, you know, a neighbor from way down the street or oh. being told that I don't fit the genre. And those sort of things burned me up inside. And I realized that the real power wasn't being an actor. It was being a director or being a producer because then I got to decide what was going to be made. And I got to decide what what that looked like. And so I kind of took a step back from the theater program and I joined this group called MSU Telecasters. They were making TV shows. And I was like, well, I'll go over there and I'll make TV shows with them. Never thought about making TV shows on my own before. And I went in and I became an actor for them. And then I was like, I've got better ideas for storylines. So I became a writer. And then I was like, (laughs) I really have a better idea for the way this could look. And so I became the director. And ultimately, I was like, I've got a vision for everything. (laughs) I became the (laughs) executive producer. So here I was, a senior in college who'd went there for performance. And now I'm the executive producer of this TV show on campus. And I was like, I think I want to direct TV and movies. And so um, and I broke my father's heart who wanted me to go to law school. And I picked up everything and moved to Los Angeles and um, went to Loyola Marymount and got my master's degree in film production. Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah. So sight unseen. had never been to California in my whole life. You're moved kidding. To, oh, yeah. I was. Yeah, I'm crazy. Apparently. <laughs> um, so, in all the best ways, Whitney. Uh, I'm like, you kind of got to do it. And I was, you know, you can't tell a 21 year old that anything's a bad idea. So, um, you know, I did it. I came out and I. Uh, started film school and it absolutely changed everything because I started directing and then I understood the joys of producing and I um, I made my thesis film which won the um, DGA award for the best African-American filmmaker on the West Coast um, my senior year which was 2003 which got my film into the Cannes Film Festival um, and I went there in 04 and I was like, this is awesome. I am a filmmaker and I will be rich and the money is going to start flying at my face right now. <laughs> and I just stood there and the only thing that flew in my face was bills. So <laughs> I'm like, now what? What do you do? And I did what every, you know, expiring pe- person in this area does. I took myself down to the agencies and I started working at William Morris Agency. And I started working in a department called TVBA Packaging, and we were doing um, a reality TV deals for producers and showrunners. And it opened my eyes to this new genre that was coming on because this is like 04, um, 05. And so this is like the beginning of the American Idols and Dancing with the Stars and the really big reality TV programs um, were really starting to light up the dials. And it really opened my eyes to the reality TV world. And also I realized that I didn't, A, I didn't have the patience to wait for a film to be made for seven years. 
I'm not made that way. I'm like, I don't have the patience for anything. And that, you know, this was a place where producers um, and development people had a lot more power in the reality TV world. And so I switched. I started getting into reality TV. I took a job at a company that was doing a lot and I started moving my way up. From there, I went from uh, being, you know, an AP, a field producer, to being a manager of development, a director of development, a vice president of development. And um, finally, I looked around, you know, 14 years later, and I was a senior vice president of development um, working for a company that was under the Warner Brothers Telepictures masthead. Holy moly. I have so many questions here. (laughs) So what I'm hearing on in one part of this conversation, you were this little kid with this, was it an innate sense of confidence? Where did that come from? To be like hustling up an agent at age six. And it's so funny because, um, you know, I'm not the kid that you would think that I was like this chunky little brown girl. Uh, um, But I had a mom who told me that I could do whatever I wanted to do and be whoever I wanted to be, Um, you know, to the point in time where she had to, you know, sometimes like dial back on that because I was like, you're irate that they didn't cast me as Annie in the community theater performance as Annie. And she's like, dude, like, calm down. Like, you you don't necessarily look like Annie. And I'm like, (laughs) Annie looks like me. You know, it'd be another 25 years, 30 years before they they actually did an Annie with a little black girl. But at that point in time, I was like, look, (laughs) Annie's round and brown and she looks like me and this is my opportunity. And you really couldn't tell me anything, um, you know, about that because my mother really stuck that in me hard. And that's something that I try to pass on to my kid all the time that you can if you work hard enough you know, you can be what you want to be. Um, And I really believe that it doesn't necessarily have to do with who's the smartest. It's who's willing to work the hardest. Got it. When you got to Hollywood, did you find that tested? Because that that place is a machine. (laughs) It's unbelievably difficult um, getting into Hollywood. You know, there's, and, you know, on top of it, there aren't um, a lot of women in power. There are even less women of color in power. Um, it really is an area where you need to know somebody and you need to be friends with somebody and you kind of need to be on the in crowd. And I didn't know anything. I was from Michigan. I was new. And I thought that, you know, just on the, you know, merits of my hard work, all these things would come to me. And I realized that I did have to learn how to play the game. I had to, you know, meet the right people and be at the right places. Um, and, you know, go have drinks with the right people in order to find these opportunities. So it did teach me a lot about maneuvering. Um, and it also taught me about um, being able to trust myself, um, uh, being able to, you know, put out ideas and stand behind them and believe that I could make things come to fruition. Um, so it was really, I mean, and literally when I started, I was, super poor. I mean, <laughs> you come out here from Michigan and it's like, everything is so expensive. How am I going to survive? Um, so it also taught me how to hustle. I mean, I had three jobs. I, you know, up until the time I was a director of development, I had a side gig managing my apartment complex. You know, I managed a 25 unit building for six years <laughs> in order to live there for free. Um, so wow, I could, you know, pursue well these done. dreams. <laughs> I was, I was a crazy person. I ran an after school program in Inglewood. Um, I, you know, I did everything it took to really be able to, to survive and thrive out here. I ate way too much baloney, um, <laughs> but it was worth it. 
<laughs> it's like bologna, ramen. <laughs> that's it. I'm like, I am high blood pressure central. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> and your work life was probably helping to contribute to that. Oh, God. It was, you know very stressful on a lot of occasions. And it's funny, um, you know, sometimes I had to sit down and think about it. It's like, dude, you make reality TV. You're not saving lives. You're not curing cancer. Why are you so stressed out? But, you know, there's a lot of money involved. It's a lot of pressure involved. Um, you're working with teams of people. Um, there's finger pointing and, you know, you have to make sure that you're covering your, your behind so your boss can cover their behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, it's a lot of pressure. And it's funny because that pressure is a lot of what ended up uh, ending me up in the cannabis space. It really, you know, pushed that transition. Uh, honestly, I was, um, had to be late twenties and I, uh, was working crazy hours. I was working as a um, manager of development and I was also kind of APing a show that my company was doing. And so I was working from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. I would go have dinner. I'd come back at 9 p.m. and I would sit with the overnight editor to about two o'clock in the morning making decisions and, and notes um, on a show that we were delivering. And so I was just working crazy hours. I was living on espresso and Red Bull because that's what they gave us for free at the office. Um, so I'm like, it might've been like straight cocaine. I was like, my eyes are open. It's fine. Um, (laughs) I'm completely operating like a drunk right now, but I look awake. (laughs) Exactly. Um, and I, I'll never forget it. I was sitting at my desk. Um, and all of a sudden my heart started, um, racing and then it felt like it was skipping beats and I became flushed. Um, I couldn't breathe. Um, you know, I was breathing shallow and I, the uh, only thing I could think of to do was get up from my desk, um, go out and get in my car. And I was working in Santa Monica at the time. I drove myself to the UCLA Medical Center, parked my car where the ambulances pull in, and I left it there with the keys in it. Like it was some sort of ballet. And I was like, you know what? I don't care because I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> Leave the car. Um, I'm going in and I'm sending, you know, all those dramatic text messages that you send to your friends. Like, I'm dying. I'm so sorry. I missed you for coffee last week. I love you. Goodbye. And everyone's like, what is happening? <laughs> um, oh, and, no. you know, it was absolutely the worst. My doctor there was like, dude, you know, hook me up to the EKG. And then she's like, you're not having a heart attack. And I'm like, oh, I'm having a heart attack. She's like, no, you're not. You're having an anxiety attack. And I'm like, say what now? Yeah, I was uh, going to say, like, most women who have their first anxiety attack don't know that's what it is. So You have no idea. I mean, because you think of, and, I, you know, part of it becomes stigma and, and, and ignorance because I was like, number one, you know, I'm a can-do person. I'm a type A personality. I can't have anxiety. I've done all these things. Well, you know, it, it's impossible. And A, number one, it's not impossible. And I also thought that, you know, anxiety was something that was in your head, not physical. And anxiety is, is incredibly physical. It's something that you feel. It's something, you know, that changes the way that your body is operating. Um, it became incredibly scary. And I really didn't know what to do with that. And it really started me on a new journey because then I was like, well, how do I deal with this? Um, you know, what, what am I going to do? And my doctor was like, well, you can take this drug and you can take that drug. And they start running me through all the things that they give people with anxiety. And the only thing I knew for sure is I didn't like any of them. I didn't like how they made me feel. I mean, I came off one of them and it made my, like, literally, like, a 
felt like electronic zaps in my head. I was like, this cannot be a thing. You really want me to take this drug for the rest of my life? It's like, oh, that's just a little side effect. I'm like, you're nuts. This is not happening. And then um, the side and- effects, like, start. you start getting prescribed new drugs to combat yeah. all the side effects of the first drug. And then it becomes, like, such a funky avalanche coming down the hill. I'm like, and they'll, they'll continue to prescribe and prescribe and prescribe. And I was like, this is just not getting me to where I want to be. I'm too young to be on drugs that I'm going to have to maintain for the rest of my life. And so in an offhand comment, my doctor was like, well, then you should, you know, you should take a look at cannabis. And I was like, say what now? What are you talking about? Because at that point in time, I had very little familiarity with cannabis as a whole. I had smoked cannabis once or twice in college, never done it in high school, knew a lot of people who had, you know, used it or whatever. Personally, Nancy Reagan told me to say no to drugs. I believed her. Um, (laughs) I'm like, why would Nancy lie to me? (laughs) We're cool. (laughs) I'm like, I had my dear t-shirt. So I was, I was just kind of floored by it, but it really made me start doing research and looking into it. Cause I was like, well, at least it's natural. And, you know, it was legal in California for medicinal and it, you know, it changed everything. It completely changed my path. It sounds like you had a really hip doctor. Cause when was this? This had to be in, oh, six, I would think. Yeah. Mid, the mid up. Yeah. So somewhere in there. Um, so yeah, and it was very hip doctor and she said it in an offhand comment, um, or what have you kind of like when you're not supposed to say something, but you say it anyway. Um, good on her. I, <laughs> good on her. I wish I could find her because I'm literally, she changed the game for me. She really did. Cause so then you walk out of the doctor's office, you're someone who had your dare t-shirt and like totally believed Nancy Reagan. Now mm-hmm. you have this doctor recommending, Hmm. What about cannabis? Did you even like know where to find it? Like, I mean, I imagine it's easier in the entertainment industry. Well, I mean, to an extent, well, number one, when she first, when she said it offhand, you know, for me, she might as well have said, have you considered methamphetamines? Crack right might help you <laughs> because it was all like, <laughs> it was that extreme for you. It, it was that extreme for me. And I didn't have any differentiating factors really. So I was like, you know, drug is a drug is a drug. She, she's just like sending me off. And then I, you know, so, but then I was curious. And so I started doing research and I started reading online, um, you know, about, uh, cannabis and med- medicinal cannabis. And I started talking to people who I knew who used cannabis um, and like, Hey, can I try, you know, I, I want to smoke with you. And they're like, you want to smoke with us? Like, yeah, I want to, I want to try. And one of the things that is difficult about cannabis as you're coming into that space, especially as, you know, someone who wants to use medicinally is that there is no, it's not like, you know, I'm going to prescribe you 500 milligrams of this particular thing. And it's going to fix what you've got going on. Um, because the plant is, you know, and is a plant and every strain is different. So there is no one size fits all cure in that space. You really do have to do work. And back in the day, they would say, oh, you know, well, if you want to calm down, you should, you know, smoke an indica. And if you want, you know, an upper, you should smoke a sativa. And if you want something in the middle, you should smoke a hybrid. But that's not true either, because there's a lot of things that play into that. 
how much you know THC is in that particular plant that you're smoking at this time. What is the terpene profile? There's a you know a million different factors in there that make a difference. So the first thing that I started doing was like, well, obviously I'm supposed to be smoking indicas. Indicas didn't work for me. It made me paranoid. Um, and which, which made my anxiety someone, worse. Yeah, which for someone <laughs> experiencing anxiety attacks or paranoid that you might have another anxiety attack, not the direction for you. Not at all. And not to mention the fact that, you know, I've got two parents who are attorneys or whatever. And as soon as I got paranoid, I was like, the police are going to come. They're going to come and they're going to come and get me. And I'm going to go to jail and I'm going to lose everything I have because I'm smoking this half a joint. I'm like, I'm just like off on, you know, some paranoid delusion. And I was like, okay, this isn't going to work. Like, I've got to figure this out. And so I started you know, um, looking into, um, to sativas, looking into CBD, CBD, heavy sativas, you know, um, CBD tinctures. And I, you know, started moving through the world. I started talking to more people and getting more options. I started, you know, finding dispensaries that sold the things that I was interested in. And I really fell into, um, into the space. And I also started doing research about why I felt the way I had about cannabis. And I thought that it was kind of important for me to understand that as well, because I had a very negative view of the plant. Um, and now all of a sudden this plant is helping me. It's, you know, keeping me from having to take these harsher medications. And I'm like, why did I feel so, you know, anti? And I realized that, you know, the the feelings and the stigma that I had was very deliberate, um, you know, deliberately set in place by the media, deliberately set in place um, by, you know, a movement that was meant to demonize cannabis and the people who use it. I mean, if you look back in time um, near the you know turn of the 19th century, more people were using cannabis um, medicinally than they were using Tylenol. That That's, is you know, wild to me. It's absolutely wild, but it's absolutely true um, that, you know, people used it all the time. It was a medication that was well known and well used. I mean, and they recommended it for everything. Pregnant women, cannabis, <laughs> got a headache, cannabis, all the things. Um, and it, it makes it was, sense to me as someone who who uses herbs, Western herbs, Eastern herbs on a regular basis. Like I barely use cold medicine. I, you know, I I really don't use as any over-the-counter stuff for the most part, if I don't have to, when I feel like nature has provided such a cool option. And I think back to the, the time you're describing, I mean, to your point, like they were using cannabis, but they were also using all sorts of other herbs. Absolutely. I mean, that's where, you know, the, the name of my company came from, Apothecary. You know, they had, they didn't have a, you know, CVS on the corner. They had to use what was available to them. And they had a guy who would walk around with a bag full of different herbs and they would mix something up for whatever was ailing you. And those bags, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time had cannabis in it. Also had cocaine in it um, <laughs> on some occasions as <laughs> yep. well, um, i.e. I, the um, home of Coca-Cola. Um, but um, so those are the things you know, that we don't necessarily talk about. And there was a deliberate move by a guy named Harry Anslinger, anybody who's really interested in, you know, the demonization of cannabis, look him up. I mean, this is very well-known, very well-researched um, information that he basically um, was a former alcohol prohibitionist. He ran the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to like 1962. And he's the one who actually started using the term marijuana. 
Um, and he used it instead of cannabis while he was saying all these crazy things about marijuana being a public menace and basically blaming marijuana and black and brown people on the you know destruction of society, murders, rapes, all these things. It's all you know marijuana and brown people's faults, and none of it was true. Um, but he was very successful in demonizing the plant, demonizing the people that used it. And that's one of the reasons why I don't use the term marijuana because of, you know, that racist background of, you know, he used this term particularly in order to demonize the people who use the plant and, uh, the plant itself. He was incredibly, incredibly successful with it. He got, you know, then all of a sudden you've got reefer madness. Go back and watch that. (laughs) See how, you know. (laughs) The cannabis will make the black man turn crazy. Um, And that was like a real thing. And it really shaped opinions of cannabis up until this day. I mean, look at modern uh, depictions of people who use cannabis. What do we see? Frat guys, bad kids behind gyms. Um, You know, these are people who are on the the fringe. The stoner in their basement. Right. Absolutely. Who does nothing, accomplishes nothing um, and is a, a waste to society. Um, these are the images that we get from cannabis still. And even in, um, you know, legalization, it's hard to fight those. Um, we don't talk. You know, it, it takes a lot of talking for us to be able to say, hey, let's look at the medicinal values. Um, let's look at the fact that society seems to be awesome with, you know, me drinking lots of red wine and taking as many Xanax as I want. But as a mother, if I say that I want to smoke a joint um, or I'm using cannabis um, medicinally, all of a sudden I become a bad person. How do we judge those things? And risk having a son taken away. I mean, depending on which state you're in. Absolutely. To this day, there are people who are getting their kids taken away for um, cannabis use. There are people who are being jailed for cannabis use. Um, and I take those things personally, not just because it's absolutely ridiculous, but it's also because people who are black and brown are disproportionately disenfranchised by those sorts of you know, laws. Across the country, you know, um, people of color are four times more likely to be arrested for cannabis use. Um, even though black people and white people use cannabis um, at equal levels. And in some areas of the country, they're 11 times more likely to be arrested um, than you know, white people for the same you know, usage uh, statistics. So it becomes also a way to um, persecute people. Yes. It's definitely strategic is what it feels like. Absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see where everything goes as stuff begins to legalize medicinally and then recreationally across the different states, because then you have to go back and look at this issue of like, well, what do we do with these people in jail who oh, yes, no longer do. committed a crime? I mean, I feel like it starts to boggle the brain. And I know that sounds it's- like super nice white lady to say, <laughs> but... <laughs> It, it does. I mean, it becomes very overwhelming if you think about how best to, to to make this situation fair, because, you know, I'm a member of Supernova Woman. I'm a board member there. Our, it's an organization that is set up to really um, support and encourage women of color to come into the cannabis space and become stakeholders in the industry, i.e. start businesses in the cannabis space that they own. Um, and so one of the things that we really lobby for is for equity, social equity. 
um, in legalization, meaning that um, that there will be some sort of consideration for black and brown people whose communities were disproportionately disenfranchised by the war on drugs. Um, because, yes, you know, uh, the war on drugs affected everybody, but black and brown communities took it hardest. They had more people arrested per capita. They were put in jail longer. Um, that meant that then they weren't eligible for student loans. They weren't eligible for federal aid. They weren't, you know, they were felons on their record, so they couldn't get jobs. And so these communities continued to, like, take pound after pound after pound after pound. And now all of a sudden we've got legalization and Jerome is still in jail, but Chad has a dispensary on every corner that Jerome used to work on. And so there's got to be some sort of equalization in play where we give people an opportunity to um, have, you know, to to open businesses in this space um, and, and be considered. I mean, in, La- in California, you'll see those sort of laws in place in, in Los Angeles um, and Oakland had. Um, you know, I think one of the very first social equity programs in place and has become really a model for the country as a whole. Um, And you're starting to see that spread. And even in conversations um, that they're having with federal legalization right now, they're talking about how best to use social equity to kind of level the playing field for these communities. Whitney, are there any social equity programs that you can think of or any resources that if people are listening and are like, oh, shit, I didn't even realize this was the problem it is, and I want to learn more about it. Where can they go? Um, I would suggest that they check out Supernova Women's website, Supernova Women. Check us, uh, you know, Google us. Um, You should be able to find us. We have resources. Um, The MCBA, which is the Minority Cannabis Business Association, they just came out with a model social equity program that they're actually uh, right now pushing on Capitol Hill um, and um, trying to get... Um, federal support for. Um, so you can go to their website and check that out, read it um, and see, you know, what they suggest communities do and why. It's really it's a, a important conversation as you know, right now you've got legalization going state by state. So, you know, what should you be looking for if your state is looking to come online with Canvas? What's important? How do we, you know, make this fair and balanced um, and give people real opportunities? At the end of the day, you know, um, some people are like, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. Cannabis is slated to be a $50 billion industry by 2025, I believe. $50 billion. There will be more jobs in the cannabis sector than there will be in manufacturing by 2022, I believe, um, Forbes said. So we're talking big business. We're talking big jobs um, right now. That's why you see so many people um, you know, coming into the fray or trying to, to get their, their messaging out there, in, in particular, you know, people who are in the alcohol space, people who are in the tobacco space, uh, people who are in um, pharmaceuticals. Those are all things that will be um, or have been affected when legal cannabis comes online. You look at numbers out of Colorado, um, you know, when uh, cannabis was legalized, um, the sales of alcohol dipped. I can believe it. Sales of tobacco dip. Um, you know, uh, 70% of people who use cannabis say that they use uh, use it for medicinal purposes, and 43% say that they cut back or completely stop taking over-the-counter medications because of it. So think about the implications um, for these industries and why they might lobby against, you know, things. I mean, this is <laughs> this is a real, you know, situation for them. They've had a very put-set market 
um, and we're, you know, a disruptive market. So we always have to make sure that people think and, and, and look at, you know, everything that's in play there. That's what makes me so fascinated looking at this industry from the outside in. I know going to South by that was the first time I really got to hear so many diverse perspectives on the industry. And I mean, it was fascinating as a whole, just the need for jobs. I felt like so many of the panels that I was listening to, and I think it came up in the panel you were on as well, that it's just like, we need skilled labor. Like we can't even attract enough skilled labor fast enough to keep up with what's happening here. And then what was, yeah. And what was also interesting was I felt like just the, you know, the handful of panels that I kind of just sat in and listened and took stuff in. I was amazed by how many women and how many women of color are in leadership positions. And then it was so strange to me because, you know, for, I felt like, I don't know, a day and a half, I had just seen so many like women, women of color, especially, which is awesome to see. And then all of a sudden, you know, on the next day, it was like John Boehner and the head of Acreage talking. And it was like, it was such a sea change. Mm -hmm. Like, I felt like I heard like, you know, screeching breaks. As like I was in that panel, like wait, wait, yeah. what is happening here? Yeah. I'm like, it, it, so let me like because you said a couple of um, interesting uh, things. There was a lot of what I mean. There was a good amount of women of color there, which was important, and it was important to us um, as women of color that that we made a showing and, and let people know not only that we're an important part of this industry, but that we need more of us in this industry. Um, I don't think that that's really indicative of how the whole market is. Uh, the it. numbers are saying that we we are not as well represented as we should be um, and definitely not um, represented um, anywhere close to, um, you know, where our population sits. Um, so that's, you know, so that's something that becomes important to us. Also, so um, women uh, for a very long time, I think still now, um, uh, there were more women CEOs in the cannabis space than any other industry across the board. And that used to stay at somewhere around 38%. That number has been dropping year by year. And I think now it's about 26%. Um, I do have feelings about why that is. Um, you know, initially, you know, uh, when the industry started to turn and there became a lot of interest in people getting into it, you know, women were willing to take the risk. Um, to do so. Um, and there was a lot of opportunity, not only on the plant side, but on the ancillary side, um, being able to tailor already known business skills to this industry and really start, you know, companies and opportunities. Um, we see a great decline in that number right now. And I think one of the main reasons is that, you know, the industry is stabling out. People are understanding what the opportunity is, which means those barriers to entry have been going up. It becomes more expensive to start a business in this space, and there's more money pouring in, specifically more money from investors and VCs. And we know from um, you know, research that investors and VCs do not invest in women um, nearly at the rate that they invest in men. Absolutely. I think the number right now says you know it's 2% um, of, uh, you know, VC money over the last five years has gone to women led businesses and 0.0006% have gone to businesses ran by women of color. So the more money that comes into this space, um, it's going to companies that are ran and operated by white men. 
And so you see that number steadily declining. And for us, you know, it's important that we continue to hold space here. The plant is feminine. Uh, We believe that, you know, having women in situations of power um, not only allow, you know, fairness and opportunity, um, but we have perspectives in this space that are very important. Um, And I think that it really has changed the look and the feel of the industry. I mean, if you look even in the California industry, you could go to a dispensary six years ago and only thing that, you know, the conversation was like, how high do you want to get? We've got the stuff that's going to make you highest. You're going to get so fucked up. And like, and that was, that was the conversation. And, you know, all the products were made to get you so fucked up. And now you go into a dispensary and some of them look like spas. They look like Sephora and you've got um, you've got the rise of the microdosing because guess what? I am 40 years old. I have a five year old. I don't have time to be so fucked up. I don't. I don't. You're like, I, I just want, want the finished. edge taken off. That's uh, that's it. I'm like, I can't ha- be so high that my legs don't work. That's not a thing. <laughs> I'm like, we've got to find a happy medium here. Um, and it's, you know, and it's a valid conversation. It's the same conversation. If this was the end of prohibition, um, you need to have someone tell you, should I be taking a shot of vodka or should I drink, um, you know, two cups of it? You need answers. You need, you know, some clarity on this. Um, and that's kind of, I think, that one of the things that we've gotten from Push a Woman into the Market is being able to have, you know, microdosing, um, being able to control how much cannabis you, you, you know, consume. These things become very important um, to us. The rise of CBD, females on average have been consuming more CBD. There, I mean, there's a whole rise of CBD beauty products, the rise of the first time consumer who is, you know, very, everyone believed that, you know, cannabis was loved by, you know, college kids and and bad high schoolers. But really the average age of a cannabis consumer is 31. And the fastest growing space in cannabis happens to be baby boomers. So everything that we knew about cannabis <laughs> its totally upside down, <laughs> turned on its ear. Absolutely. What, who's using it, why they're using it, all of those things. And I think that we'll continue to learn more um, as years go by. We get more and more market research every year. I mean, 10 years ago, you know, cannabis was thought of so poorly that they weren't doing, you know, demographic information. They're not doing demos on people who are using meth, um, you know, um, so once, you know, the tides turn, the attitudes change, people were more educated. Now we have more um, data to back up, um, you know, what people are using and why. It's so interesting. As you were saying that, I was thinking in my head, well, I wonder if people are more open to even discussing it. Like, because how could you even collect the data back then? Right. I'm sure people were like, uh, uh no, I'm not talking to you about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's- Absolutely. I see it even just here in the Catskills. And I mean, New York is definitely a more progressive state. We're right next door here in the Catskills to Massachusetts, which is another super progressive state. And it's it's wild. It was, I just started using CBD last fall. And really, it was a function of, I had my second concussion in five years. And I was experiencing a bunch of post-concussion stuff. And my husband plays hockey on a bunch of like beer league teams. And he just went into the locker room of each of his, you know, the teams that he played on and was like, hey, guys, my wife fell down the stairs, got concussed. Like, 
what do you guys use? And he said it was kind of like everyone kind of looked at each other like, do we do we talk about this? Uh, and exactly. It, and it was only because, you know, my husband was like, yeah, my my wife's like lights got knocked out and, you know, she's been nauseous and headachey for weeks that people finally were like, yeah. And as he went around the locker room, like, I don't even know what the percentage was, but it was a very large percentage of each of the rooms that were like CBD, 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 CBD and cannabis, uh-huh. CBD, CBD, yeah. CBD. <laughs> it's, it's the greatest, you know, kept secret um, in those communities. And it really, that's indicative of what I found because when I was really starting to, you know, look further into this space and seeing that there was opportunity here, um, I started talking to people, um, you know, that I knew, uh, quietly. And what I realized is that, um, everyone who I knew who made, who used cannabis was making, you know, six figures. They were your doctor, your lawyer, your, you know, your next door neighbor. They sat next to you at church. Um, they ran, you know, the business. They were agents and managers and, and, you know, people who were highly respected, working hard. Nobody was sitting behind a gym or stuck in their basement um, <laughs> all day, stoned out of their mind. And I was like, everything, you know, that they're pushing is just, you know, patently false about this community. And if that's the case, I think that there is, you know, demographics that aren't being served in this space. Um, and maybe I could go after one of those. And um, let's and talk about what, that space. Uh-huh. Let's talk about Apothecary and what it okay. is and what you're doing. Awesome. So Apothecary um, at its face, the best way to describe it is this. You keep wine in wine fridges. You keep liquor in bars. You keep cigars in humidors. But almost everybody I knew was keeping their high-end cannabis in a shoebox under their beds. Um, I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's just that that simple. Unlike people who I knew um, who had everything else nice and house looked like Pottery Barn would still invite you over and pull out an old Nike box and invite you to smoke out of a plastic baggie. And I'm like, if this doesn't feel compromised, I don't know what does. I'm like, it's absolutely crazy. And at the same time, I realized I have a kid in my house. I don't want him getting into cannabis. And so what I would do is hide it on top shelves where I would find it five months later because of mommy brain. And it was like dry as all get out. You touch it and it turns into dust. Or I would lose, you know, where's my pipe? Where's this? Where's that? And everything was scattered all over the house. Um, And it just wasn't a very mindful experience. And also I realized but cannabis as a plant, and as such, it needs to be kept in a humidity-controlled environment. If it's not, it has the ability to mold or, worse yet, dry up and have those trichomes fall off. So trichomes and cannabis, that's where you're getting that euphoric high from. Um, when they fall off, it diminishes the medical benefits of that plant. also makes for a harsher smoke. Got so it. a lot of times when people are coughing a lot, they're like, oh, I'm coughing a lot because it's so good. It's like, no, you're coughing a lot because it's so dry. <laughs> um, problematic, dude. Yeah, like dry um, or and, dry air, like, smoke, your throat. Exactly. Doesn't work. I'm like, and so people are spending all this money to get all this great strains and great plant, and they take it home and they treat it like crap, you know, and then, and they're losing those trichomes. They might as well bought the crappy stuff because they're not keeping the good stuff well. 
Um, and I was like, well, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, I was like, well, I need to be keeping my plant in a humidity control environment because I'm not smoking it all at once. I want to be able to have it at home and, you know, smoke some over the weekend or smoke some when I need it or whatever. I won't include, you know, uh, my old Michael Kors boxes. Um, so I really, you know, uh, initially thought, you know, what I really need is a caboodle. I need a caboodle for cannabis Stop. because I'm old and I remember caboodles. I'm, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm right there with you. I had the nail polish one and the regular exactly. one for all my little soaps and toners Ex- and probably Noxzema. Awesome. <laughs> exactly. And so that's oh, a noxema. I can just smell it thinking about it. Um, Enjoy this multi sensory so, conversation, <laughs> listeners. Seriously. Um, so, yeah, and that's basically, I was like, I'm going to make myself a high end caboodle for cannabis. That's my new plan. And I started playing around with it. And I realized that there was not anything like what I wanted on the market. Um, that there was a real opportunity here, um, that I had years of experience developing lifestyle programming and uh, content for the audience in which I was speaking to, um, this higher-end audience, the audience that you know most people were telling me at the time, there is no high-end consumer in cannabis. Everybody is poor. Uh, <laughs> um, and you're like, au contraire. Like, I'm like, I don't believe it, and I think that I can prove that wrong. So I continued to play that game. And finally... I came up with a concept that I thought that would work. I had the things that mattered to me. I wanted safety via some sort of lock. I wanted to make sure that the plant was kept in humidity. I wanted to make sure that there was a space in this uh, box for my tools and all the things I needed to have a good smoking experience. And I wanted to make sure that when someone walked in my house, they wouldn't look at it immediately say, that's where the cannabis is, and they wouldn't be able to smell it. Because I didn't want people to walk into my house and smell like, you know, um, I, I had a operation going there. So those were kind of my my four um, touchstones. And I designed it. I went out to my friends and family and I said, hey, I've got this idea. I, you know, and I was able to scrounge up $30,000 of investment money on my first go round. So then I went out and I started a crowdfunding campaign. And my idea was that I was going to pre-sell these. I was going to get them made. It was going to be awesome. And so I spent, um, you know, a lot of that money um, prepping for this and doing advertising for this and taking pictures and video content all around this uh, project. And about two weeks into it, I uh, got an email from them saying that you are selling paraphernalia and that is illegal and we're pulling down your campaign. And it was the most devastating thing that had ever happened to me. It was like a punch in the gut. All the money that I had taken from friends and family and aunts and, you know, small quantities of money and it was all lost. And I was like, I don't know what to do now. Um, and that, you know, that happens in entrepreneurship and, you know, you hide underneath the bed and wonder what, you know, what to do. And I gave myself about 24, 48 hours of that. And then I realized that it was time to put my big girl panties on. And if I believed in this, I had to take a shot. So I took every penny that I had left um, and pennies that I didn't have. And I bought 100 cases. And I was like, look, I'll take these 100 cases. I'm going to put them on this website and we'll see if they sell. Because at that point in time, people were telling me no one wants luxury um, in cannabis and no one cares about how they keep it. And I wanted to prove them wrong. So it was basically. <laughs> it's so funny know, what a motivator that is, right? 
It is. I'm like, like, if you want me to do something, tell me I can't do it. <laughs> then I will definitely do it. I'll do it twice and I'll throw it in your face. <laughs> it's, it's a skill set of mine. Um, but Whitney, so, you had to be scared shitless. And you were a mom oh, at this point, right? I was, I was a mo- not only was I a mom, but I was a newly single mom. And I was, I was scared to death, beyond scared to death. I was like, it's amazing that I lived um, with the amount of anxiety that I was feeling on an everyday basis. And at that point in time, I didn't have any more money to like advertise. I didn't have any more money to push it. All I could do is put it on this website and close my eyes and pray. And we sold out of 100 cases in six weeks with no advertising at my Are price Are you board. kidding? I don't know how it happened. I still like to this day, I'm like, it was divine intervention. I just, I can't imagine how it happened. Um, but I was like, this shows that the market holds up. This shows that I've got an MVP. Um, now I can have better conversations. Now I also had to sit down and have a conversation with myself because at that point in time I was looking, you know, I, I was like, what am I going to do next? So I, um, and did you still have a full-time job at this point? Was this something no, you were doing I, on the, the side or this, did you finally decide I've got to go all in? Well, this is about when the, I decided that I was going to go all in. I realized that, you know, it was time for me to leave that job. Um, and the question was, was I going to go and pursue other jobs in the industry? I had some offers on the table or was I going to pursue this for me? And I realized that in a very real way, I'd made millions of dollars for the companies I worked for. Um, millions of dollars. And can I make millions of dollars for me? Uh, can I work as hard for me as I worked for them? And uh, the answer to that was yes. And then when, you know, it's not a good time to do this, you, you're a new single mother, what are you going to do? Um, and then I was like, you know, when is it a good time to do this? When is it a good time to risk everything and throw, you know, caution to the wind and take a bet on yourself? It's never a good time. There's never like, this is the time to be risky. <laughs> I'm like, so you have to, you know, I saw the opportunity. I saw that there were low barriers to entry. And I was like, fuck it, let's go. Um, and I did what any great entrepreneur does. I took my house, the only thing I had of value from working in the entertainment industry that long, and I sold it um, as, a, as a crazy single mother. Um, sold my house, poured money into my business, and went balls to the wall and never looked back. As a former CPA, I hear this and I'm like, I still get that feeling in my gut when I hear like major risk happening. Oh, right? major risk, major risk. I was nauseous for like months, just, just as a baseline nausea because you're risking everything. And I've got this little person who wants to eat every single day. It's like, dude, you ate yesterday. <laughs> you want me to provide all your meals? Like what's happening here? <laughs> like, so I'm like, it's, crazy. Um, but at the same time, I want, you know, uh, I want him to know that he can do anything that he sets his mind to be. And it's funny. One of the things that made me know that I was doing something right was I was playing on the floor with him a couple years ago. We were playing Legos and they had people or whatever. And we were talking, you know, I need a, you know, hand me a teacher and he'd hand me a guy and this guy's going to be the teacher and this guy's going to be this. And I was like, hand me the, you know, the boss, who's going to be the president of this company. And he goes and he's like, not this one, not this one, not this one. And he reaches up and he hands me one. That's a woman. Um, he's like, cause he's like, she's the boss. Girls are bosses. And I'm like, my kid believes that girls are bosses. 
I'm doing this right. I'm like, I want you to know. (laughs) It was, you know, one of those okay moments for me. I'm like, I'm, I'm making this work. And, you know, really, it's been incredibly hard. Even, you know, ever since I decided to take my business through a business accelerator that was down in um, San Diego. It's called Canopy. Um, it was uh, formed to um, help support and accelerate businesses in the cannabis ancillary space. Um, so they invest in your business and you go through a 16 week in- extensive, intensive program. And I'm a solo founder. So literally for 16 weeks, I commuted from Los Angeles to San Diego. Um, I, you know, would leave Monday mornings at six o'clock in the morning, um, and do a handoff with my, um, kid's father. I would go down to San Diego and I would work, you know, 12 hour days, um, staying in an Airbnb. Um, I would leave there, uh, Thursday at two o'clock, rush back so I could pick up my kid from daycare and be with him Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, as I'm working, as much as I can, um, and balancing him and, you know, Monday morning we would do it all again. And so I did that for 16 weeks in order to build up my company. And whereas everybody else had teams, I was solo. So I was working like a a straight crazy person, but it was one of the smartest things I ever did for my business. And so much as I learned a ton, um, about the cannabis space, the industry, I met a lot of people in it. I understood how to raise money, what investors were looking for, what's important for me to be able to, um, verbalize when I'm having these conversations with investors. Um, How do I tailor my product um, to be a better market fit? All of those things that I did not know, because I don't know if you remember from the beginning, I have a degree in theater and a master's degree in film production. (laughs) None of that (laughs) covers business (laughs) or, you know, sourcing um, and and supply chain management. So there were some things that I needed to, to learn. And there's also some people I needed to bring onto my team because my job as a CEO isn't to know everything. It's to be able to ro- drive the bus. I need to put people on the bus who have the skill set to get us all where we're going. I don't have to ha- know it all myself, but I do need to be able to, you know, to bring that knowledge base in and be able to have intelligent conversations with the people who do have that knowledge base. And so that's kind of what I worked on during that time. And it really did. It helped accelerate my business. We went on to ra- raise a a seed round. Um, we've been doing well. We've been doubling our sales on a year over year basis. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. And and we've been able to really, you know, crack into this market. It's been an amazing trip thus far, but nowhere near, um, easy. And, you know, even (laughs) when people were telling me, Oh, this is going to be the easy part. You know, the hard part is, you know, growing scale. And I was like, you're crazy. That's ridiculous. I'm like, um, growing scale is going to be easy. And now I'm in the growing scale phase and I'm like, you know, basically rocking back and forth, sleeping in a closet. because <laughs> I'm so stressed <laughs> out about making sure that we can grow and we can scale and we have the money to do what we need to do. And, you know, it, it all parts of it are hard. Also being an uh, entrepreneur is very isolating. Let's talk about that. Cause that's something I've really struggled with on a personal level, which sounds weird as someone having coaching conversations for 10 years, right? Like I'm having all these conversations, but there is a difference between those conversations and then just having a, being able to have a conversation where the other person actually says, well, how are you? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, so there's a lot of levels to it. I mean, number one, even, you know, in a situation like yours, 
there for me, I could go long periods of time without ever talking to anybody else. I could be working in my house, um, you know, at, at my desk, believing that all my ideas are magic and made of gumdrops and genius juice um, <laughs> with no one to bounce any ideas off of. And those things, you know, that becomes problematic when you don't have someone to talk to. Also, you know, you can't vent to your employees as you bring people on to your team or whatever, you can't be like, Oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to make payroll this week, Bob. Cause Bob's like, Oh shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> together. I'm like, so you can't have those conversations with Bob. You need to be able to have those conversations with other people who are at your level, who are dealing with what you're dealing with. And you also need to be able to have conversations with other people because they are going to be able to give you ideas and concepts and things that work for them. You need to be able to have a community around you um, that you can ask questions to because you will spend months of time working on dumb ideas that no one was around to tell you was dumb shit. <laughs> like you need someone to be like and that. quickly like, exactly. before you invest Get out of that dumb hundreds exactly. of hours Get out of that dumb crap. <laughs> You're wasting your time and energy. You need someone around you to say that. And so it's important to me for entrepreneurs. Um, to build those communities around them very deliberately. For me, you know, part of it is that I work at home a couple of days a week, but otherwise I'm at either a co-working space or I'm at a, a Starbucks, something that gets me up and out of my house uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, it allows me to be more creative. It allows me to interact with real people in real time. It allows me to not be harassed by the fact that I have um, laundry that needs to be done. Yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm like, all of a sudden the dishes are staring at me and they're like, hey, girl, you ever going to wash me? <laughs> and now I feel obligated and now I'm off track. So, you know, doing those things, I'm a part of a lot of groups within my space where I'm going to go and I'm going to meet with other women CEOs and talk to them about what they're going through. I'm, you know, meeting with others, you know, CEOs in the ancillary space, um, you know, being able to have these real conversations. I'm a member of mastermind groups where I'm talking to other people who are dealing with the same stage of growth um, as I am. You have to fight those things um, as much as you can, because it really, it'll, it'll mess with your mindset and it'll um, affect the way that your business goes. Um, and it can also allow you to slip into, you know, depression. And I've seen all of that happen um, with entrepreneurs. Um, like it, it really becomes um, something that, it, that is worth talking about and worth, um, being proactive and, and making sure that you're combating. It's really important. I mean, for years I worked in a model where I would I would talk to women about like getting dressed. And that for me was an acronym for diet, rest, exercise, stress management, but also social relationships. Uh-huh. Because I was and you know, that didn't start out that way. It sort of morphed over the years. But I was realizing more and more I was I was talking to these really successful type A, in a lot of cases, women who were just literally balls to the wall, getting stuff done, being the top of their career, but lonely as all get out and isolated. Because again, for everything you just described, like as the boss, you can't be like, well, how am I going to make payroll this week? You can't, you can't. You can't hold the space and do brainstorming and ideation sessions about that with the people that work for you. Not at all. Not at all. It doesn't flow that way. Um, And it's, you know, and being able to have those conversations. um, And also you mentioned something else that became really important for me, which was health. 
I realized, you know, there, we're, we were at a point where like my kid is like three and a half, but I'm still like 40 pounds up from, you know, baby weight. And I'm like, by the time I get back to my pre-baby weight, this kid's going to be doing trigonometry. Um, I had to <laughs> really focus on give myself permission to focus on my health and well-being. Um, for me, that meant that I put times for me to go to the gym on my calendar and they didn't move, you know, uh, meetings came up. We had to schedule around the time that I had placed on my calendar that was, you know, for me and for mindfulness. So I made sure that I, you know, focused on those things that I gave myself permission to eat better, that I gave myself permission to, um, to work out and to do those sort of things, you know, also as an entrepreneur, you know, you spend, you know, a, a good chunk of time being broke, you know, you're investing everything you have into your business and you're not focusing on yourself. And so you start to feel really guilty every time you spend money, you know, and for me, it was like, you know, you're going to waste your savings, just trying not to be fat. That's crazy. But yes, I'm going to waste some savings <laughs> trying not to be fat because you know, I need to be healthier. I need to be healthier for my kid. I need to be healthier in order to endure everything that I need to do um, for this company. I need to have my head firmly on my shoulders. And all of those things became really important to me. Um, and I realized that as I focused on them, my business did better because I was treating myself better and I was taking better care of myself. And it was absolutely necessary and worth every cent um, and time lost. It was not, you know, a, a waste of time and energy to take care of myself. That is a really important link that you've made. And I don't know if on the podcast we've covered it in, in such a way that you just did. And I think it's brilliant. It really, I mean, it, it, it changed the game for me. I lost 50 pounds almost. I felt better. I looked better. I was more confident. Um, I had more energy to do more things. It really changed a lot about, you know, me and it changed my anxiety level as well. Um, because yeah. I was, I was, I was caring for myself. I was going to yoga. I was, you know, doing the things that were necessary. Um, sometimes we run our engines till they're dry, and then we wonder why we're not getting the same results. It's like you put no gas in the tank, dude. What do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't work that way. You have to, you know, you have to fuel yourself up. And you made the investment in yourself. Like I feel like when I was practicing as a coach, it was. It was an interesting process, right? Because in order to work with me, women had to get over this hump of investing in themselves, right? They uh -huh. were going to have me for several hours a month in person and then, you know, through email and things like that to help them get from A to B. And that looked different for all the different women I worked with. But it was, it was interesting because it was such a, a, a big jump for women to just put that space on the calendar. And I think initially that's what I represented to a lot of the women that I worked with. Like, I'm just going to pay this woman so that I show up for myself. The rest will figure out within the sessions, but like that leap. And that was tough. I, I mean, over the years, I mean, I've gotten a lot of no's and then when the sessions actually started, you know, that was like when women really had to invest in themselves, invest in, in the time, like you're talking about, like you put the gym on the calendar and you make it stick. You don't just throw it away because someone calls and asks for that time. And that is a huge challenge. What do you think 
helped you get going. Can you reach back to those memories? Helps me get going, I guess, in what way? Um, I I mean, I remember initially, I, I felt like the whole thing would be indulgent. And I... Yeah, I think that's the best word for indulgent. That's a good that, word you know, for it. I should, um, you know, I should be able to do all the things um, and I shouldn't take time for myself because there's other things that were more important. Um, and then I really had to change my mindset and remember that I'm most important. I can't be a good mother. I can't be a good CEO. I can't be a good leader. I can't be a good decision maker without making sure that I first am okay. Um, and being able to wrap my head around that and realize that it's not an, it's not being indulgent, it's self-care. And that self-care is real and that self-care is important. That's what changed everything for me. Was there something that flipped that switch for you or did it just come from pure necessity? It was me on Christmas Day as my kid was opening presents, returning emails and customer um, uh, responding to customers in my pajamas. And not paying attention to what was happening in my life because my business had taken over everything. Um, And to a certain extent, as an entrepreneur, your business does take over everything. It becomes everything to you. It's a reflection of you. uh, And there's a lot on the line. But I also realized that I can't continue like this. I couldn't. I was not going to make it if I couldn't find some balance in my life. What helped you erect those boundaries? What were some of those initial boundaries? Initially, I was like, I'm going to, the first thing I did was I did a, uh, I did a fitness challenge. I was like, I'm going to commit myself to working out four days a week. I'm going to commit myself to a better diet. I'm going to commit myself to 20 minutes of mindfulness a day. Um, and it was, you know, um, a January 1st sort of commitment that you make to yourself that who knows if you're really going to keep it, but it sounded really good on January 1st. Um, <laughs> especially after the Christmas you were answering and, client exactly, emails. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so I, you know, it was baby steps in and I realized at the end of that, that I felt better, that I was being more effective, that I was doing more things. Um, even though I was taking this time out of my schedule that I thought was going to hurt me and it was really helping me. And I was like, well, what else can I do in order to take care of myself? And I mean, I do things across the board. I, you know, I dedicate time to not only, you know, going to the gym, but I also, you know, I get my nails done every other week. It feels like, you know, that's not important. It's taking care of myself. It's an, you know, an hour that I'm going to spend taking care of myself, getting pampered, chilling out. Um, You know, I'm going to go to yoga um, and, um, be able to go there and, and chill out, um, and feel good about myself, um, for having gone. It's being able to put those little things in place that feel, you know, sometimes indulgent, but being kind to yourself. Um, also for me, um, because I'm a, you know, besides being a CEO, I also still work in the entertainment industry as a consultant. I also teach at the college level, um, in theater, Um, I, you know, I have a lot of things like plates spinning in the air. Um, one of the indulgencies that I, that I love, um, is I have a housekeeper that comes every other week and helps me keep my, myself from going under in, in dishes and, uh, dust, you know, those small 
self-care things <laughs> that yeah. I put in place in order to, you know, and like, and it's funny because my mother um, or that generation would be like, who do you think you are? You need a housekeeper? Yes. Yes. I'm a single mother. I have a five-year-old. Um, and the money that I give that woman is some of the best money that I spend all month. It really is. It, it, it's, you know, being able to pull things off my plate and put it on another plate and give my time, that time back to me in, in different ways. So those small things where they feel, you know, insignificant or uh, unimportant really end up being able to put together for myself a life that I can live. This is so interesting because I, I feel like your story, especially about hiring a housekeeper, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to be the one doing it. Right. Darn tootin'. Absolutely. <laughs> and I feel you on having a mother that would probably like wring my neck if I like hired a housekeeper. Thankfully, I'm at that point where I can still handle it right now. But I think this is something that's come up so many times with clients. And I think it's come up once or twice on the show. It's it's interesting that we feel like that that guilt sometimes about like, oh, like I hired this person to do X, Y, and Z, and whether it's inside the house or yard work or whatever, it's funny how much like we as, and I think this is somewhat gendered as women, like put that pressure on ourselves that we have to be able to do everything. When it, when in reality, if you took how much money you made in a year and divided that by 2000 and looked at what it would cost you yes, to do the part. dishes versus mm-hmm. run your company, different story. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I did. I looked at the numbers um, of it all. I could, you know, being able to pay 80 or $90 twice a month versus what I'm losing by spending my time doing it. Um, you know, I had to realize that there, that I didn't have to be superwoman. I didn't have to be superwoman and being able to take the smaller things off my plate gave me more opportunity time to do the larger things that were going to have a bigger return on investment for me. Um, and uh, I think that a lot of women feel that superwoman obligation. We've got to be able to do it all. We're going to bring home the bacon, cook it up, clean up afterwards. Um, you know, we're going to be Martha Stewart and my, uh, Mark Cuban all at the same time. And we can, but we don't have to do it, um, you know, to our detriment. I think that being able to figure out the the spaces where you can push some things off of your own plate onto another um, to free up your time and your energy to do other things and take on other projects become important. How do you know when enough is enough? Like I'm hearing you talk about knowing when to take things off your plate it sounds like you are really analytical, like you're thinking about things in terms of numbers. You're strong with that kind of analysis, it sounds like. But do you have a process for sort of revisiting that? Because I know as an entrepreneur, as soon as you free up space, you just put new projects into it, right? Like, Of course you that, do. Of course. Right? That time and seems to get even that. up. I'm like, I'm like, I saved myself four hours. That means I can take a new consulting client on. <laughs> And have all sorts of new problems to, to add to the plate. It's, it's one of those things. But I think um, what really helped me is that I spent a week really analyzing what the heck I was doing. What am I really spending my time on? I'm spending, you know, eight 
hours or nine hours responding to emails that other people could have responded to. I'm, you know, running here and running there when I could have someone else do those runs. What is most important? What is really, you know, making the money in this company? And how do I focus on that? Um, so really, you know, I've got, um, like I said, I have two parents who, who were attorneys. And so I was uh, familiar with the idea of billable hours. So I spent, you know, a week really <laughs> analyzing what was I spending my time on and what was that return on investment? So if I can, you know, that's one of the things that really made me take the leap. And I picked, I have a, an assistant now who works for me 20 hours a week doing a number of things within the company or whatever. Um, a lot of, you know, returning the, the emails and customer uh, service sort of things, making sure that, you know, things are, you know, being connected and setting meetings and those sort of things. I was spending, you know, four hours a week setting meetings when I didn't need to set the meeting. If I spent those four hours talking to clients instead, you know, it was a much better use of my time and a much better return on that investment. So I, you know, I suggest that to people that they take a time, you know, take the time to actually figure out what the heck they were doing. Also realize that, you know, I was spending some time during my week doing things that were household items that I didn't need to be spending time during my week doing as well. So I'm like, you know, so part of that stuff gets put off by me being able to bring on a, uh, someone who's going to help me clean. And part of that gets put off by me taking myself out of the situation. If, you know, sitting and watching the dishes are too much, I'm not going to sit at home. <laughs> the dishes will still be there. I'm going to go work at the Starbucks. I'm going to go work at WeWork. I'm going to get get out of it. It'll be fine. I'm like, these are just the things that Everyone type A will personality live to can't tell deal about with. It. They certainly will. They certainly will. Um, and I'm not, you know, and I can't let those things stress me. So yes, take myself out of the environment. I'm much more productive um, if I'm not sitting there staring at it. Those sort of things um, really did make a, um, a difference for me. Whitney, thank you for opening yourself up, especially about the stuff that may feel seemingly mundane in terms of, you know, the stuff that you're thinking about and the stuff that you're troubleshooting on a daily basis as a CEO. This is huge, I think, for women listening. So I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love to be able to, you know, share those sort of, you know, insights and at least what works for me. Um, you know, obviously everybody is different, but, you know, I think that being able to hear these sort of conversations, at least for me, was very helpful as I tried to discover my, my best path to being an entrepreneur. And I have one more question if you're open. Absolutely. So we've covered a lot of ground. We've jumped across two different industries. We've traversed the history of your career. We've heard about your self-care habits in infinite detail. What do you want women listening to take away from this conversation? My favorite quote is, women that seek to be equal to men lack ambition. Ooh. And so I think that that's kind of what I want women to take away from this conversation is that, you know, ultimately my goal is never, you know, to, I don't want to just be able to compete with guys in this market or, or in any market or, you know, be the best woman CEO I can be. I want to be the best period. 
end of sentence. Um, I don't want to let uh, other people or situations or who I am or, you know, <laughs> how my ovaries <laughs> are attached <laughs> um, dictate what my success rate is or what I have the ability to do. And I don't think that any woman should, um, you know, so and I feel like sometimes women want, uh, have a tendency I don't even like saying it like that, but there's a tendency to feel that they, we're competing against each other. Um, and I hate that. We're competing <laughs> in, in the larger market and a candle that lights, um, you know, loses nothing of itself when it lights other candles. So I'm hoping that women take away that this is something that they can do, that they are capable of, um, and that they can do it better than, you know, anyone who came before them. Brilliantly said. I think you had your genius juice this morning. Um, <laughs> Tastes like CBD. <laughs> <laughs> Whitney, this has been such an honor, and I can't wait to follow your career and everything that you're up to. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone for listening. I really appreciate the opportunity and the time. Hey everyone, it's Kara again. Wow, I really hope Whitney inspired you all to take a couple things off your plate and think about how you're spending your time and probably lots of other things related to this show that hopefully you're, you'll be mentally chewing on for a bit. But I want to remind everyone, everything that we mentioned, all of the resources and organizations and things like that, that's all lives in the show notes, as well as all the links and ways you can follow Whitney. So you can find the show notes at Le Vital Core Salon, so L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S salon.com and also check out theapothecarycase.com that's where you'll actually get to see the product that Whitney described and we were talking about in the show and that's apothecary with two R's get it? apothecary? carry? okay anyways you get it check out what Whitney's up to And don't forget, new shows will be out on the second and fourth weeks of the month. But you don't have to remember that if you remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And sharing is caring, y'all. If you thought of one other person while you were listening to this show because of whatever Whitney's doing or you liked something in this conversation, please share this episode with them. You can do it by text. You can forward it. You can just subscribe them to the podcast, whatever works, but don't forget, it's an easy, free way that you can support small businesses or growing businesses like Whitney's. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to producer Craig Snyder, virtual assistant extraordinaire Darlene Victoria, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the excellent theme music. By the way, High Dials have some new music coming out, so do check it out. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.